Welcome to Southern Sense Talk Radio with your host, the radio chick, Annie Ubellis. Join Annie on Tuesdays and Fridays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time with an open chat room full of her regulars. And yes, you can even call in. Call 917-889-3675. That's 917-889-3675 to be a part of the action on the phone line. Not able to listen live? Not a problem. You can always catch Annie, the radio chick, and Southern Sense Talk Radio podcast in archives at southern-sense.com. So sit back, relax, and enjoy Southern Sense the right way. Listen, guys, I got something special just for my listeners. If you follow me, you know I usually don't hawk products. I stick to the issues important to you and me. But I think I can't keep this to myself. You may want to check this out and get in on the ground floor before everyone else jumps on the bandwagon. Now, this is just for you, my listeners. I joined up with Team Earth Water. Earth Water is a company that is faith-based and patriotic. Earth Water is an amazing water. It will soon be the rage of the nation and is going worldwide. It has over 70 antioxidants and minerals. It's good, trust me. I already sleep better. I dropped one of my prescriptions, and I'm possibly looking to maybe drop another one soon. So ask yourself, do you want to make a few extra bucks on the side while getting healthier? (laughs) Who doesn't? If so, check out the Earth Water link on my homepage at Southern Sense. That's the name of the show. Put a dash in the middle southern-sense.com. Who doesn't want to make some easy money? You'll earn a 10% commission on what you sell, and they even set up a web page for you to sell from. How easier can that be? Every time a customer returns to your page and buys, boom, you just earned an easy 10% commission. Sign up now. Buy at least a case. And let me know what you think just by going to my webpage. That's the name of the show, Southern Sense. Put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. All right, and welcome back to another episode of Southern Sense here on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, High Plains, Daily News. Uh, oh, God, up on iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, and half a dozen other different places. Uh, just go to the name of the show. Like I said before, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. I'm your hostess with the most, just the radio chick, Annie, along with my debonair, erudite, and oh-so-intellectual and handsome co-host, Curtis C.S. <laughs> Curtis, I wasn't ignoring you. I am in 15 different ways this morning. Oh, my goodness. Uh, and plus, I, I can hardly see at this moment. <laughs> so... Well, I'm I spent a little my time, discombobulated. I spent my time trying to figure out. I spent my time trying to figure out um, before the show what went on on Capitol Hill yesterday. You know, I mean, this guy is he is he slick or what? Oh man, he makes Slick Willie look like a kindergartner. <laughs> Come on. Yeah, well, he, he thinks he's struck, slick. I watched. 
I, I watched some of that, and I just, I just wanted to reach through the TV and just smack that smirk off his face, honestly. <laughs> oh, you I'm sure half my listeners felt the same way. And, you know, we, we got to the point where we just had to turn it off, just had, could not watch it. Oh, my God. It's like, you know, screeching across the chalkboard. Oh, my teeth were hurting. <laughs> oh, I turned it oh, away. Man, but I, we I turned watch- away from that. I turn away from that channel every time the um, Democrats try try to um, defend the guy. It's sickening. Oh man! Oh, we're gonna be talking about this. Uh, you know, Maxine Waters screaming in the background. You know, where were the screeches from her when they were borking? Uh, where were the screeches with? Um, uh, 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 oh, good lord, Clarence Thomas with the pubic hair on the soda can. Where were the screechings and the outrage? on half of the things they did to poor Amy Comey Barrett when she was being uh, just recently uh, being uh, interviewed for her district judgeship. You know, where were the screechings when they were attacking her religion? You know, where, where were those screeches then? But this clown, I, 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 well, anyway, that's, that's a lot more to talk about. I uh, just want to let everyone know I came through my second cataract surgery with flying colors. It was a little bit harder Yay. than the first one, honestly. But at this point, I'm still wearing my eyeglasses. I'm kind of blind in one eye at the moment. So it's a little interesting trying to get through. That's why I was a little <laughs> late in coming in with you, Curtis. But I'm getting around to it. Uh, with that said, normally I do an in-depth uh, dedication to a fallen hero and I chose uh, for today's dedication police officer Sean A. McDonald, uh, who was killed in the line of duty on March 15th of 1994. He was a fellow officer out of New York City Police Department in New York. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, the dedication I had chosen to read uh, would have left me extremely teary. Um, so I'm going to actually truncate it and do a full dedication to him at a later date. So if you will bear with me, it's going to be rather short and rather sweet. And this is from the Officer Down Memorial page. Police Officer Sean McDonald was shot and killed while attempting to arrest two suspects for the robbery of a clothing store. About 7.30 p.m. on Tuesday, March 15th of 1994, Officer McDonald, who had been guarding a condemned building on the corner of Edward L. Grant Highway and Shakespeare Avenue in the High Bridge section of the Bronx, was alerted to suspicious activity in a nearby clothing shop. Walking into the store to investigate, he confronted two robbery suspects. After frisking one and while attempting to frisk the other, both suspects attacked Officer McDonald. One of the suspects drew a firearm and fired at Officer McDonald, striking him at least five times in the neck, torso, and arm. Officer McDonald stumbled from the fuselage of bullets outside to the street and radioed for assistance before collapsing. He was rushed to Columbia Presbyterian Medical Center, where he died a short time later. The suspects fled the scene, but were in custody within 48 hours. Both suspects were convicted of second-degree murder and armed robbery and sentenced to life. They will be eligible for parole in 2018. In fact, their parole hearing is ongoing as we speak. Police Officer Sean A. McDonald was a U.S. Army veteran 
and served with the New York City Police Department for one year, eight months. He is survived by his wife and three children. He was assigned to the 44th Precinct in the Bronx. And to add a side note to this, because I was still on duty when this occurred back in 1994, one of the responding officers to the 1013 officer down was his own brother, Andrew. Andrew responded to the scene where his brother lay dead on the sidewalk. This is why I'll be doing a full dedication to him at a later date, because the Daily Beast had published Detective Andrew's testimony before the parole board, and it's very powerful. And I will be doing a second dedication to Officer Sean McDonald at another time. But I will finish this dedication with the song Amazing Grace in honor of Officer McDonald and to all the brave men and women that serve as first responders, be they law enforcement, firefighters, or emergency services. And I also dedicate it to all the brave men and women that serve in our military from the birth of our nation through today and into the future. With a reminder that just recently, a U.S. Navy SEAL lost his life in the rescuing of the Thai sports team from the cave. God bless each and every one of them. You're here listening to Southern Sense here on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, I Plains, Daily News. Oh, gosh. Just go to our radio show webpage, which is Southern Sense. Put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. And, Curtis, we're waiting for our guest uh, to uh, call in. So, let's, yep, 
we're just waiting for him to call in. But we have a lot to talk about. And, uh, oh, geez, like we were talking about the um, testimony of Peter Strzok yesterday. Oh, yeah. my goodness. Oh, what a, what a joke that was. What an absolute joke. Uh, while we're waiting for Eric Pratt to call in, um, our phone lines are open to anyone else that wants to call in, 917-889-3675. And uh, feel free to discuss whatever. Um, but like I said, that, that, that testimony was just absolutely <laughs> – it, it, it yeah, was a four-ring circus, not a three-ring, a four-ring circus. Yeah. There's no way in the world that I could see bias in this guy, you know I mean? He was just so convincing. I mean, I'm led to believe, even though it sounds biased, that it wasn't biased. It's remarkable. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. And when they were trying to parse the definition of the word it, and it flashed back to Bubba Clinton and his testimony, what is is, (laughs) define what is is. (laughs) That's probably who coached him. And, you know, there was one moment of clarity out of the entire thing, and it came from the least, the last person I expected any clarity from, Representative Elijah Cummings. And he basically said, and I'm going to paraphrase, he basically asked Peter Strzok, you know, what were you thinking when you did this? And I'm going, of all people, the last person you expected logic coming from was Elijah Cummings. But we got our guest in on the phone line now. Let's bring him aboard. Good afternoon, Eric Pratt of Gun Owners of America. Good afternoon, and how are you today? Doing great. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. And I have to admit, several times when I was starting to send out the emails and everything else to people to notify them the show, I started to put your dad's name in. Because every time I put down gun owners, I'm trying to put down Larry instead of you. Understood, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, oh, I've been man, called Larry many doing? times. Oh, he's doing great. But you, uh, doing fantastic. Actually, the two of, you, two of you really don't look a lot alike, you know? <laughs> no, but... But uh, certainly growing up, I heard all the time, boy, you sound like your dad. In fact, even just recently, you know, we were celebrating the 10-year anniversary of the Heller decision, and I was speaking uh, out in front of the Supreme Court, and somebody came by and said, I I heard that voice, and I thought it was your dad, and it it was you. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, there's a lot of of similarity, and certainly the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. And thank heaven for that. Thank heaven for that. Uh, you're the executive director for Gun Owners of America. And, you know, actually, uh, I forgot you had written a book back in, I think it was, what, 93, 94, called Bearing Arms, Our Rights, Our Duties, and Our Freedoms. And I tried to get a copy of the book, and it's out of print. Oh, man, I wish yeah. you could put that back up on your on your gun owner's website and let people get a hold of it. Uh, I appreciate that uh, that idea. That's uh, certainly something to look into. Yeah, that was something uh, pretty exciting. Actually, it had been birthed from a, a thesis that I had done in grad school, and and uh, uh, Coral Ridge Ministries took it, turned it into a white paper and uh, or booklet, and uh, sent it around the entire Congress. So I uh, actually got a lot of tread. So that, that was pretty exciting. Well, maybe we should do that again, considering the attacks on our Second Amendment. <laughs> it might be one heck of an idea. Yeah, I mean, here we're living in a day and age where people are talking about repealing the Second Amendment and confiscating firearms. I mean, the battle lines are uh, as clear as ever. No, that's an understatement. You know, um, 
there's so much to talk about in the attack on our gun rights. And with these recent Spanish school shootings, I, I want to pull my hair out when I listen to lamestream media in their reporting about it and the misconception on an AR-15. And a matter of fact, um, you recently received a letter after one of the shootings. I believe it was the one in Santa Fe or Park Slope. I forget which one. A 14-year-old girl wrote to you. And when right. I read the article you wrote about it, my question was, who dictated that to her? Because obviously this did not come of her own free thought. Someone gave her those words to write because it is the complete left uh, playbook. Well, it certainly was, and, and I suspect that it was uh, perhaps a class project that she had to do. And uh, so, you know, she was just following the, you know, the talking points that they were giving her. And uh, but, yeah, she was uh, it, it was clearly, uh, clearly written from such a leftist perspective. Um, but, uh, yeah, uh, you know, she wanted to know, uh, you know, how we could be so uh, supportive of things like AR-15s, which cause so much carnage and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, I, you know, wrote her back uh, respectfully and just pointed out that, uh, quite frankly, uh, uh, you know, the, uh, just a lot of the, the misconceptions that she was, uh, you know, had bought into, uh, one of which is that, uh, quite frankly, the AR-15 is not one of the most uh, dangerous firearms. Uh, you know, certainly any hunting round would be far more lethal uh, than than your AR-15 round, uh, which is uh, basically a 22 caliber uh, round, and uh, anyway, there's several other items as well. But uh, yeah, it, it just uh, I think it was another yet yet another one of the the class projects that that kids were given right after the Parkland shooting. We uh, had a rash of calls from. Uh, students who were obviously reading off a script, and uh, whenever we tried to ask them any questions about what they were saying, they didn't want to talk about that. They just basically wanted to stay on the script, which I think was pretty clear that, uh, you know, here again, uh, uh, as soon as school let out at 2.30, that's when the calls started coming in, and so it was pretty obvious what was going on. Yeah, it's funny because no longer are we allowing our kids today to have free thought. There's no critical thinking. There's no exchange of ideas. And now they're just following the playbook. They're mimicking what they are being fed, and and that's it. That is it. Well, you know, you're absolutely right, and uh, that's something that we owners of America is to reach the, the next generation. Um, and so you see us doing, uh, we'll do trips to colleges uh, and uh, especially colleges and in some cases also high schools, uh, but to, you know, to speak on Second Amendment issues. And you can always be sure it, it doesn't matter how liberal or conservative the school might be, you're, you're going to run into uh, a lot of opposition in terms of the thinking. Although it's interesting, uh, you know, we're talking about my father earlier. Uh, he's been uh, all around the country speaking at colleges, but uh, when he's been out in California, he's found the most resistance. I mean, it's the liberal left, uh, left coast for, for, or named that for a good reason. And uh, at, I forget which university he was speaking at. I think it was one in Santa Rosa. But uh, there were death threats uh, against him and others in the club that was uh, sponsoring his speaking there. In fact, they were considered so credible that authorities had them move the 
before the event was supposed to take place. Uh, in another one, uh, in another place, I think this one was in Michigan, they found the editor of the newspaper, the school newspaper, going around and pulling down the uh, posters which were advertising Larry's being there to speak. And, uh, you know, n not exactly uh, freedom of thought uh, from this uh, school uh, newspaper editor. Anyway, somebody caught her on video doing this and realizing she had been caught uh, kind of the, like the Cheshire cat with that, that grin. And she just walked up to the video camera or, you know, the iPhone, whatever it was, and just said, do something about it and walked off with the, the posters crumpled in her arms. And uh, apparently the school did do something about it because she was fired. So uh, <laughs> very nice. Such arrogance. Well, you know, well, you know it, it's, it's funny because not a lot of people pay attention to what Congress is doing, and some of us do. And the recent legislation passed for the School Safety Act, buried in there was a, a section of it where it stated that any school that teaches about firearm safety could have their federal funding yanked. Um, is, is that going anywhere? Has anyone actually tried to pull that out of that, that legislation that they passed, or is it just no one's enforcing it? Uh, well, yeah. I mean, it was signed into law, I think it was late March or in April. And, yes, unfortunately, that's that's now the law of the land. Um, there was some other uh, legislation, and this was the omnibus spending bill uh, that, that was troubling as well. I mean, what you just laid out was troubling. Uh, other parts of the School Safety Act were, were fine. I mean, assuming that that's, <laughs> you know, once you get past the assumption that's actually a legitimate function that gov our federal government should be involved in. Uh, but, you know, it was uh, you know, ne neither good nor bad, but the part you indicated was certainly uh, very troubling. But there was other things like the so-called fix-nix legislation, which basically put the, the, the FBI's uh, NICS background check system on steroids because it's going to give uh, two-thirds of a billion dollars to the states to get every conceivable name that should be put into the background check system. Now, some may think, well, well that, that sounds like a good idea, right? Well, not when you consider that already 95% of the denials under the background check system are false positives, people who shouldn't be stopped. And a lot of people who are, are being stopped, even say, well, okay, it's technically legitimate under the law. They're not the kind of people that we say should be denied. And I'm talking about military veterans suffering from PTSD who, beginning with the Clinton administration, started taking those names and treating them as mental defectives. Now, when we, you and I think of a mental defective, that's not what comes to mind, is it? Uh, you know, a military veteran who's suffering from PTSD goes to uh, the VA, the Veterans Administration, for help, counseling, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But then they take his or her name, and uh, beginning with President Clinton all the way through Bush and, and Obama, and they put those names uh, into the, the NICS background check system. Uh, those are the types of names that now that two-thirds of a billion dollars 
Stores is going to make sure every single name that needs to be on the background checks in the background check system will be names like uh, you know people who have outstanding traffic tickets. You know you're you're on vacation, traveling in another state. You get a traffic ticket, you forget about it. Now you can be treated as a fugitive from justice if you don't pay off that ticket. And we've seen cases where people go to buy a firearm, and lo and behold. It, you know, it turns up they're a fugitive from justice, and they're thinking, what? You know, I've never committed a crime in my life. <laughs> oh, but you had an outstanding traffic ticket from Ohio or, you know, North Carolina. I mean, this is how it works. And, you know, really, it just flies in the face. If we have, as we believe, our Declaration of Independence says, uh, we have been endowed by our Creator with rights, there is no reason, no good reason why the government should force people to prove their innocence before they exercise th those rights. We don't do that uh, with the First Amendment, preaching a sermon, writing an article, broadcasting uh, a, a show. We don't do that with uh, you know, marriage or, or any other right that we would consider uh, near and dear, uh, except when it comes to the Second Amendment we do, and, and it results in tragedy. It results in people being disarmed who should not be disarmed. You know, when when I started doing this show, I started delving into some of the t statistics, and more people are killed by hammers, by fists, by knives, than by guns. You know, guns are low on the totem pole, but they're the straw man for the argument, any way to control the public. And now that they're, they're talking about uh, this red flag laws that they're coming across the country, oh, but it works in one state, so no one's complained about it. As a matter of fact, this one veteran with PTSD said, "Thank you for taking my guns away." Wait a minute, it, it is a slippery slope that we have gone down, and we are sliding downhill real fast with this one. Yeah, the red flag laws are, are a real problem, and we've referred to them as gun confiscation orders. Uh, basically, they, these laws suspend a person's Second Amendment rights because your guns can be taken away without any substantive due process taking place. No trial by jury, no attorney representing you. Uh, only an, an accusation by a family member or a former intimate partner, something like that, made before a judge. And not even based on anything you've done, it's just a fear on what you could do. I mean, if this sounds like that movie Minority Report, it is. You know, no crime has to be committed, just an accusation. And, and so judges are the ones that, you know, they, they typically will grant these, these gun confiscation orders. You know, a study in Seattle found that judges have only once said no to a gun confiscation order request. Only once. Uh, you know, so, I mean, this is a real case of, uh, you know, the, you know, uh, like you see in the, in the movie Minority Report, you know, people getting arrested, not for what they've done, but for what they might do. And that just turns our system of law, our whole legal system on its head, which is, you know, you get tried and either convicted or acquitted based on things you've done or not done. Uh, but this whole idea of this, you know, this person is a danger because of what they might do, uh, you know, we could find, many people could find, you know, their, their businesses shut down, uh, lose their livelihood and property uh, if this concept were to spread to other areas where based on, you know, somebody's accusation, 
uh, now you're going to have your rights, your property taken away from you. It's it's a very dangerous precedent that's being put forward here by the anti-gun left. You know, now, it's, it's amazing because uh, we still. I was going to just mention we still have this full <laughs> arms treaty that the UN is still trying to push. So we have a globalism still attacking us here in the United States. Curtis, I'm going to lead into this with. Let you go give your question, but I want to lead this upwards somewhere. So go ahead, Curtis. Oh, okay. Yeah, I was just going to say that um, guns in America have have gotten a a bum rap. You know, all you hear about is the murders and and other offenses that are committed um, by guns. And we we know guns don't don't shoot anybody. People shoot other people, but. I don't know. I, I think we need to have more, more, um, say like for instance, a TV show or something like the Justice Channel or ID Channel, where you can have a program that shows where guns were used to defend people, where people have used guns successfully to defend themselves, and I think that would take a, away a lot of the negative um, stigma from um, people who our gun owners and people who have guns to protect themselves and and lessen the you know impact of the the negative um environment that's out there about gun use what do you yeah, think I of think, that i think that's a fantastic idea um you know we uh, on our website at gunowners.org we have a self defense corner uh, which has uh, as many articles as, as as we can find, which which give these stories that aren't being portrayed in the media. And you're absolutely right. I mean, uh, w- because without presenting that side of it, the media, the mainstream media, tries to get away with demonizing guns, and they typically use the phrase "gun violence." You know, yeah. as you were suggesting, look, no gun on its own just gets up and shoots somebody, and you, you see the hypocrisy. For example, when you compare to other types of murder, like when the truck was used in Nice, France, to run over and kill 80, uh, more than 80 people, you know, they didn't talk about truck violence. You know, when planes were used to kill 3,000 people in New York City on 9-11, they didn't talk about plane violence or box cutter violence. You know, same with the Oklahoma City uh, terror strike, right? I mean, we didn't hear about fertilizer violence because, you know, fertilizer was stuffed into a rider truck and it brought down a building killing over 150 people. You know, so you you see the hypocrisy there. I mean, in all those cases, they focus on the bad guy, and yet magically or mysteriously when it comes to uh, guns that are used in crime. They want to call it gun violence. And it's obviously part of the agenda to demonize firearms. And further to that, exactly what you're saying, then they don't give the other side of it, which interestingly enough, the um, Obama administration in 2013, uh, his CDC published a study, and based on that study, we now know that guns are used to save life rather than take life. They're used to save life 16 to 100 times more often to save life than take life. I mean, that's uh, certainly worthy of notice and should be reported on. And having a uh, you know a program to do that on a regular basis would be fantastic. I don't know that we would have the uh, the, the wherewithal to uh, to do that, but we would highly uh, uh, want to see something like that happen. 
Well, you know, the problem is is that the bad stories, people want to hear about bad things happening to people. It, 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 the old saying is if it bleeds, it leaves. But when something good happens, it's all, oh, that's nice. It's a nice, touchy-feely story next. It, it's not right. sexy. It doesn't sell. And that's the problem. We don't hear about how many times something good happened. You know, we can, we can tell you know, that, story after story after story when good things happen, but to them it's not interesting. That's true. And yet when they do report on the story that is bleeding and hence it's leading, uh, they still manage to mute uh, any use of a gun in self-defense. I'll give you a classic example. Uh, Pearl High School in Mississippi. Uh, there was a shooting there. It was either in 1996 or 97, where a student uh, brought a gun onto the school, uh, shot several people, killed several people, and of course this became, you know, one of those school massacres that was covered in depth by the media uh, for two weeks, you know, just every single day, you know, and, and of course, media asking the question, you know, why do we need these types of guns, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, what's interesting about that shooting is that it was brought to a screeching halt by the assistant principal, Joel Myrick, who, uh, in obeyance of the gun-free school zone ban, he didn't have a gun with him at the school. However, he had one in his truck. So he ran to his truck, grabbed his gun, ran back, and was able to make the the killer uh, stop, cease, and desist, put up his hands, and, you know, basically do a citizen's arrest until the police could could arrive. So he was obviously the hero. Well, here's what's interesting. Uh, Criminologist uh, John Lott studied the media coverage on that event, found that, you know, naturally there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of articles written on that shooting. Less than 10 mention that a good guy, like the assistant principal, with a gun stopped the shooting, stopped the shooter. And uh, so he actually called some of those uh, journalists who, uh, you know, and asked them, you know, did you know that Joel Myrick stopped, stopped the shooter? And every single one of them said yes, they, they did know of it. And yet when he asked them, well, why didn't you report on it, the typical answer he got is, well, I just didn't think that was important. See, that right there shows the bias of the anti-gun left. That's the bias. So even if they are covering a story that, okay, even using their parameter, if it bleeds, it leads. And, and I get that. I mean, my wife studied journalism uh, in grad school, and, you know, and she, that, that's what they taught her. If it bleeds, it leads, right? But even in the midst of that, they still want to mute any acknowledgement that, good people are using guns in self-defense. And you know what? I think Fox would have a hit on their hands if they had a show like that because I sure would be interested in it. I mean, they got shows out there like Cheaters and stuff. People watch that. I'm sure they like to watch (laughs) somebody defend themselves. You're absolutely right. And that is a fantastic idea. But if they have a show like that, also show why the person what they did right, why they survived whatever incident. And it would be a good yeah. you know, learning program as well as showing, hey, this incident happened. Or if something went wrong, saying, all right, fine, this is what we instruct people to do. There's a lot that can be worked with that. It's a very great idea, Curtis. Um, but I wanted to get on to the global message uh, because recently you were involved in the making of a trilogy called Revelation, Dawn of the Global Government. And I watched part one. 
which people can go to the website, which is uh, revelationthemovie.info. And between t- uh, today and the 22nd of this month, they can watch it for free, the first part of the trilogy. Tell us about that movie, because when I watch it, I'm, I was going, holy crap. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, Larry would probably be the, the better one to, to ask about that. Uh, unfortunately, I, I haven't been able to see that yet. But I, I think, it, from, from my understanding, it just lays out the threat that we are seeing uh, globally, including the U.N., uh, where there is this march uh, towards increasing restrictions on gun control, where they want to uh, pull us into it as well. Uh, and, of course, there, there was a treaty uh, which uh, the, the Obama administration signed, which has not been ratified uh, by the U.S. Senate, thank God, uh, and which we've actually been appealing to the Trump administration to uh, to unsign the treaty, which is certainly a presidential prerogative, and we're hoping that uh, in the next two years that's still part of the the president's agenda. Uh, but absolutely, uh, you know, the, 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 the what we're fighting, you know, we've been talking about the the battle in the Congress, et cetera. But then there's this whole other level uh, where you know these guys working behind closed doors are trying to to pull us in and get our guns registered and. Uh, you know, our and that the latest push now is uh, trying to register ammunition, uh, you know, globally. And, uh, you know, thankfully, that's something that uh, John Bolton and, and Nikki Haley, uh, who are, uh, you know, in the administration, uh, I think, have been fighting. Uh, but, uh, you know, what makes it really tough is that we're dealing with unelected bureaucrats. Uh, you know, think how bad, uh, how tough of a problem we have with our elected representatives and senators. And yet when you're looking at the, the U.N. level, I mean, you're talking about people who are, are not there uh, based on representation. Uh, you know, I mean, it, it's in our case, perhaps a, a very, uh, you know, a very distant representation because they're you know put there at the, at the behest of the State Department or the president. Uh, but looking at other countries, I mean, boy, oh, my goodness. I mean, you're talking about uh, in many is dictatorships, and uh, there's absolutely no representation in terms of who's, uh, uh, you know, being represented there in uh, in in the UN Council. So anyway, it's a, it's a real threat, um, and you know, thankfully, uh, so far up till now, uh, to uh, keep it outside of our borders. But it's constantly something that we need to keep uh, an eye on. Uh, it is an eye-opening movie, and I recommend people, because like I said, it's free. You can watch it by going to revelationthemovie.info uh, between now and the 22nd of this month, and then they're going to be releasing the full trilogy for people to purchase. Uh, but you watch the first one. You definitely are going to want to watch the next two that come up, and I'm dying to see them also. Matter of fact, uh, Larry, uh, Larry, see, I just called you your dad's name. <laughs> Eric. Um, I've, I've been called worse. That's okay. <laughs> On August 3rd, Anita is going to be on the show with some of the people that participated in the movie. Uh, So we're going to do a whole show uh, around the the movies. So because of you, I ended up with another whole show because of it. So thank you for that. Uh, One of the things I want to uh, talk about, you know, talk about globalists, is that now banks are getting into the gun control bit where uh, companies such as PayPal, uh, I believe the other one, Citibank and Bank of America are saying that if you sell guns, we're not going to process your credit card or debit cards. 
Now, that is scary when a bank is telling you what you can and cannot buy. That is scary, and that is a huge problem. Yeah, they're denying loans. They're denying credit to certain gun makers and sellers. Uh, Some large banks are even considering a special code for gun-related transactions. So at best, uh, you know, that means that banks could start registering the guns and ammo that you buy. Uh, at worst, uh, that means that they could start blocking gun-related purchases. Uh, it's kind of this, you know, all sounds vaguely some, uh, familiar to what Obama tried a few years back with Operation Choke Point, where his administration tried to force banks and credit card companies to cut off loans and credit to the gun industry. Uh, thankfully, uh, a GOA-backed amendment in Congress, uh, and it was attached to a government spending bill, prohibited the program. But now, as you were just laying out, banks are taking it upon themselves to put gun makers and sellers out of business. And so, you know, that's a real problem because, you know, we may have – well, let me rephrase that. We do have – a right to keep and bear arms, which even pre-exists the Second Amendment, but which is protected by the Second Amendment. But here's the point. You know, if you have that, but you can't buy a gun because these gun makers have essentially been squeezed out of business because they you know, can't get loans or credits or process their transactions, you're going to have a tough time exercising your, your rights. You know, that, that's a real problem. So you know, we've sent a letter to, to Capitol Hill. We're, we're lobbying them to look into this and uh, to correct this, because let's face it. I mean, you know, you know, you, you might say, well, gee, in, in, in a perfect world, banks should be free to do whatever they want to do. And that's kind of the, the, the freedom approach. And I would agree with that. However, that's not the case that banks are in. I mean, uh, banks are being propped up with taxpayer dollars. You know, I mean, you've heard the phrase uh, too big to fail. And so whenever there's a downturn in the economy, uh, they're given uh, taxpayer dollars to help prop them up. So clearly, they're not operating in a uh, complete free market. We, the taxpayers, have helped prop them up. And given that case, uh, therefore, they should not be allowed to turn around and stick it to the, you know, uh, those who are exercising their, their constitutional liberties or their constitutionally protected liberties. So uh, we have encouraged Congress to step in and uh Nothing's, uh, no action has been taken yet, although there have been several well-placed congressmen, people you know, like in charge of banking committees, et cetera, uh, who are now starting to put the squeeze on, on the banks, and they're uh, you know, expressing their displeasure with what the banks are doing. And so and this is, uh, all that to say, this is an ongoing battle, uh, and you know, we're very hopeful that we'll, uh, we'll see this resolved in a, in a good way where they onerous uh, regulations that th- that they've uh, uh, now started applying to the gun industry. Now, I'm just curious because we've got the LBGT community that's pretty locked up the court system with their, their, their lawsuits. So if you deny them a wedding cake or selling the wedding bands or the, the bridesmaid gown or whatever it is, if you deny them, you are taken all the way up to the Supreme Court saying that their rights were denied. But heaven forbid you exercise your constitutional right of gun ownership, and yet you will be denied the ability to purchase one or to have the, 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 uh, the ammo for it. Uh, you're not required to register your wedding cake, but we're required to register our firearms. So 
the hypocrisy you see on the left, where it once is good for the goose, is not good for the gander. No, you're right. And what makes it especially tough is, there, you know, we are fighting gun control all over the country, uh, you know, putting out fires in so many different places. And, and so it makes it very difficult because, you know, we, we you, you know, you're, you're forced into kind of a triage mode where, you know, we you, you've got to choose which battles you're going to really, you know, like go through the courts. And, uh, but going through the courts is very, very expensive. And it can sometimes be a crapshoot because, you know, let's face it, Obama got to spend eight years packing the courts. And through a lot of that time, uh, you know, the, the um, uh, Harry Reid had gotten rid of the filibuster. And so uh, as a result, he was just, you know, they, they were just slamming liberal judges through. So, you know, it, in a lot of the court system, um, you know, you're you're probably throwing good money after bad trying to bring a case. Probably the, the, the best that we can hope for in many cases is working through the Congress where, uh, you know, as we were talking about earlier, you've got legislators who are accountable to the people. And so that makes a much more solid way of getting some of these uh, draconian things that, that are occurring, uh, getting them repealed is by working through the Congress, but it, it's, uh, you know, much more expensive and much more of a gamble when we're doing it through the courts. Now, it's just funny how the left can use it to their advantage, and for us it seems to backfire, except for the case, as you said, it's the 10th anniversary of the Heller decision. And a matter of fact, to let you know that each show we start off with a dedication to a fallen hero, normally it's someone that's either a first responder or a military but shortly after Mr. Heller passed away, we did dedicate a show to him for the courage he showed for going forward and taking that all the way up to the Supreme Court and standing by his constitutional rights. Uh, well, you must maybe thinking of somebody else because uh, Mr. Dick Heller is alive and well. In fact, he was there for uh, the, the 10th anniversary. What was the case in What was the case in Chicago? The uh, African American oh, yes. gentleman. Yes, you're thinking of Otis McDonald. Yes, and he did pass okay. away. That's correct. And boy, he was a fine gentleman. Uh, we we had the chance to to meet with him personally, and just a, a great Christian man who loved freedom, loved the. the and uh, he is uh, sorely. Yes. Um, uh, that, glad we uh, clarified that. Yeah, because uh, Dick Heller is uh, uh, doing well. In fact. Um, because of uh, Heller, now we've concealed carry. Oops, sorry. Uh, so can can you hear me now? Okay. You're walking around. Yeah, you're walking around. Can Can you hear me okay now? Yeah, we. Got yeah, I'm on a I'm on a landline. That's surprising. That's occurring. Uh, but I was saying with Heller. Uh, because of that initial decision in 2008, there have been subsequent cases, uh, cases that GOA uh, has been involved in, which have now brought concealed carry to Washington, D.C. In fact, um, uh, when I was speaking with uh, Mr. Heller just a couple weeks ago, he said that uh, he is now the 801st person in the district to have a concealed carry permit, uh, which, you know, that doesn't sound like a lot on the one hand, but uh, when you consider 
how difficult and how many hurdles D.C. has tried to make it uh, now that they've lost in court and they had to kind of put up the white flag of surrender. Uh, it's encouraging to see that now we're talking about hundreds of people with carry permits as opposed to, you know, just uh, 10 or 10 or 20 or 30, uh, which is initially uh, what we were seeing when uh, when the D.C. government was just dragging their feet and and rejecting people out of hand, because basically for for years they had this what uh, was known as a good reason requirement. Uh, so you had to prove why somehow you had an exceptional need uh, to exercise your right for self-defense. Of course, that just throws our Bill of Rights on its head. Can you imagine doing that with other rights where you have to demonstrate, prove to the government, uh, you know, why you need to exercise your right to free speech or your right to the press or religion. You know, we, we wouldn't tolerate that in other areas. And yet that's what the anti-gun left wants to do with our Second Amendment protected rights. Uh, it's, it's absolutely amazing the way they, they go after it. And what I find is the hypocrisy on the left is that here they are for pro-choice. It's my choice whether or not I, I murder an innocent unborn child. But if I am to defend my right to life by use of firearms or the right of someone else to have life, uh, nope, nope, that's not good. It's okay if we murder everyone, but it's not okay if we defend ourselves. It's, it's the two-faced argument. It just doesn't wash with me. And I think that's why we see a lot more people joining that walk-away movement uh, that uh, Brandon Strucker started uh, recently. And it's amazing. Uh, I'm seeing we're running out of time here, but I wanted to touch on the new Supreme Court nomination of uh, Judge Brent Kavanaugh. And, oh, boy, are they salivating on the left over him. Oh, my goodness. He's, he's everything from... Uh, killing women to destroying the world. Oh my God! What else can they heap on that poor man? Yeah. Well, and when it comes to the Second Amendment, the anti-gun left is just apoplectic. Uh, and you know, very liberal senator from Connecticut, Kavanaugh, a Second Amendment radical. He said he could become the most radical voice on the court on guns. Well, that would be nice if, if that happened, actually. His uh, partner in crime there in Connecticut, Senator Richard Blumenthal, said that um, the Kavanaugh's position on the Second Amendment is way far to the right of Justice Scalia and certainly of Justice Kennedy. Well, we can certainly hope so that that's the case. And, of course, Michael Bloomberg's group, Every Town, they're, uh, you know, they're basically saying that uh, you know, Kavanaugh's going to end our civil society if he's uh, put on the court. So, yeah, they are going crazy. But, you know, Kavanaugh is a judge who reveres the Constitution. He's shown respect for the rights protected by our Second Amendment. Uh, we think he will be a huge improvement over Anthony Kennedy, who was all over the map on the Second Amendment. I mean, he Kennedy had some some good, uh, you know, there were times he agreed, which we were glad to see, uh, but he was also a very, shall we say, moderating force on the court, which was uh, in terms of gun rights, which was disappointing. And uh, so anyway, uh, as you said, the anti-gun left just absolutely hates Kavanaugh. And, uh, you know, it, Kavanaugh wasn't uh, our first choice. Uh, we think that there were stronger choices uh, that were out there <clears throat> that could have uh, been picked, we wished would have been picked. Uh, but having said that, 
uh, we think on, on Second Amendment issues, uh, Kavanaugh has shown he is very strong. And so, you know, for that, we're very excited. Yeah, it's going to be worthwhile to watch those to see whether or not they can actually bork him. If anyone remembers poor Judge Bork and what he went through, or Clarence Thomas himself, and he so eloquently said it. It was like instead of using the end of a rope to lynch him, they used the court, to, the uh, the Senate to lynch him. And what grace he held under fire on that, because I wa- remember watching those hearings. Oh, man, it's absolutely amazing. But uh, fingers crossed, and hopefully this will go through before the midterm elections. And this is also pivotal, the midterm elections, uh, because there was a woman running in the state of New York. What the heck is her name? Tendra Cobb out of District 21, who was uh, doing a meet and greet. And someone asked her, a young woman asked her a question about her stance on gun control. And she quietly said, well, I'm in in favor of gun control. And the woman asked her, well, why don't you say that publicly? And she said, well, if I say it publicly, I won't get elected because the district she is in is upstate New York, which is a highly rural area where they love their constitutional rights. Yeah, uh, I saw that story, too. And uh, it's, uh, that was so beautiful to see that come to light. Because you know so many politicians run doing that. Uh, in fact, that's one of the reasons why, and, and we've done this for over 20 years, and we'll be doing it again this uh, election cycle. We pulled together a candidate rating for every uh, candidate who's running for the Congress, and uh, we base it on not just what they say, but if they have a previous experience in in a lower legislature, uh, we will use that uh, to score them so people can see, not based on what they're saying, but based on what they've done, where their candidate stands on Second Amendment protected rights. So uh, people will be able to see that on our website. If they're members of Gun Owners of America, they'll get the rating in their mailboxes uh, in mid-October. And, of course, people can uh, go to our website at gunowners.org, and they can sign up uh, to become a member and then start getting uh, those important mailings and, and alerts like that. I have one more well, question. I because, and it, well, let me just make this one point, Curtis, because uh, the NRA, I think, right. is something like $85, $95 a year to be a member. But Gun Owners of America is just $20, and it gets you full membership for a mere $20 for a year. Got to put that in there, and people can go to gunowners.org to become a member. Go ahead, Curtis. Yeah, I was going to ask, um, what can organizations like yours and um, the NRA with Ali North at the head, do to promote a more positive um, view of guns in America? Well, I think, uh, you know, certainly uh, what we're doing right now is, is part of this. I mean, you know, uh, that, that we're here uh, talking to people about the positive uses of firearms. I mean, this is something that um, that we do. I know, you know, NRA does a lot of good work in terms of teaching uh, people how to use a firearm and uh, training instructors. That's actually something uh, Gun Owners of America is looking to get into as well. So, you know, we're, we're obviously looking to do more. And if people have ideas, uh, you know, we talked 
er, a little bit earlier about our self-defense corner, which is on our website at gunowners.org. Uh, but certainly if people have other ideas, uh, you know, like what you were saying, Curtis, uh, with a, a channel uh, emphasizing stories like that or any other ideas, you know, people can go to our website and drop us a comment and give, give us their suggestions. Uh, we'd be certain, you know, we would love to, uh, to take a look at that and see how we can implement those. It's a great organization, uh, GAO, which is also gunowners.org, and you guys do a lot of fantastic work. You know, uh, there's so many more things we have to talk about, but unfortunately we're running out of time. You know, uh, the importance of the uh, midterm elections of 2018, and I'm just wondering, I'm going to have to check because here in District 1 in South Carolina, it's represented by Mark Sanford, who lost in the primary to Katie Arrington. And she's such a lovely, lovely lady. I love her dearly. Um, she's going to be back on our show this Friday, but she was in a horrendous, horrendous auto accident. Um, she was, they were hit head on by a drunk driver, and the woman that hit them did not survive. Uh, the woman that was driving her, um, they were on their way to get an award, and she's still in the hospital at MUSC. But Katie Arrington is a strong proponent of uh, gun rights. So I'm going to make sure I will get a hold of her chief of staff because I was speaking to him last night and make sure that she becomes a member so that you send her that rating card because she had a fantastic ad out when she was running against Mark Sanford where she had she was talking about you know, killing the rattlesnake, so she's in her backyard with her thirty eight shooting a rattlesnake in the commercial. That's <laughs> I wouldn't fantastic. recommend people going in the backyard to do that. But that's how strong a proponent she is. So I will make that's sure that great. she gets a hold of you guys and gets well, that Well, thank thing. you. But uh, it's, it's important that people do go to your website to see exactly what the candidates stand for. And if they're willing to put their money where they're now truly a Second Amendment supporter, and then if, if you are then are you a member of the NRA or of Gun Owners of America or any other gun association? You know, show us where your affiliation is. Did you put your money where your mouth is? Well, agreed. Uh, you know, we need to stay active. I mean, oh, goodness knows. Uh, the other side, uh, and we saw this after the Parkland shooting. I mean, they are organizing, they are marching, and, uh, you know, they want to uh, change you know they want to turn it blue and restrict our rights repeal the second amendment confiscate certain firearms so as you're just saying i mean you know freedom isn't free and uh so you know we do need to stay active and look for how we can spend our dollars to really help protect our liberty yeah it's funny because you were talking about supporting for the concealed carry here in the state of south carolina we had the concealed carry which is great uh, but they were looking to have open carry, and I had my state senator, you know, at one of our Tea Party meetings, and we were discussing open carry. And he looks at me, and I'm not a huge woman; I'm just a little tiny thing. He looks at me, he goes, "Well, where do you conceal?" And he goes, "I don't want to know." <laughs> <laughs> but, you know. <laughs> and of course, you know, I, a lot of my members are burly ex-Marines, and that that gave them a pretty good chuckle. <laughs> Don't worry about it. It's safe and secure. Oh, man. That's great. But Gun Owners of America does such, such good work, and you've got great articles up there. And one of the articles recently you wrote, which I put aside, was talking about that young girl that wrote you a letter. But the weaponization of our children and our youth, uh, 
and the brainwashing we have going on, it's important that groups like yours and shows like this are out there to speak the truth. Because a lot of people are unaware of what the actual truth is. And the little known things is, that are inside the health care law that I spoke about, where, you know, they, they had gun confiscation in there. It'll, you bring little Johnny to the, to, the, uh, the, to the doctor, and the doctor will ask Johnny, are there guns in your house? That goes on to the medical record. There's so many things that were in there. There was a case out in California where a woman was on Paxil. And because her husband owned guns, they went and knocked on the door with a warrant to confiscate his guns because she was on Paxil. Yet she posed no threat. These are the things that are going on that people are unaware of. And this is where that red law, that, that red law is the red flag law is so treacherous because it's happening before that law passed. What are they going to do to us now that these laws are passing across the country? Absolutely. And, uh, yeah, I, I hope people will uh, sign up, uh, become members of Gun Owners of America. Also, while you're there on our website at gunowners.org, sign up for our email alerts because those red flag laws you're talking about are one of our big pushes to stop, to, to defeat these laws. And we've been uh, doing a lot of work in getting our members to contact there. Because uh, just real quickly, uh, a lot of conservatives were touting these as kind of a, uh, you know, th this is a good way uh, to stop, quote unquote, gun violence, and it's not gun control. That, that's what they were saying. And this was conservatives saying it. And I think we've been, at Gun Owners of America have been able to change the debate on this. We've now killed it in over 12 states uh, and you know it, the battle will start up again in January uh, for now I think we've we've uh, stalled it in the Senate uh, the US Senate uh, but you know that's why I say we need more people to rally with us because the, the more people we have the louder voice we have in Congress and in the state legislatures around the country all right. Well, before you go, I just want to add that if people go to your website, gunowners.org, and they become a member, you are giving away an AR-15, and I hope I win it. <laughs> <laughs> well, sorry to <laughs> disappoint you. That that was a July 4th giveaway. However, we will be doing more. I think the next one we'll be doing is for Constitution Day. We haven't announced that one yet. But uh, Brad from Montana already won the July 4th uh, giveaway. Uh, however, there will be more to come. So uh, that's a, a, another good reason to sign up on our email list because then we'll be notifying people when, when that happens. Well, we also have a friend of ours in the chat room, Kel Fritzy of Red Fox Radio, and she said, Mr. Pratt is an interesting and informative person. Can Canada steal him? Because she's up in the Toronto area. <laughs> so, can, oh, man, Eric, can, we had a lot of fun. Thank you so much. Oh, You're very welcome. Thanks again for having me. Thank you. All right, Eric Pratt, uh, check out the website, gunowners.org, Gun Owners of America. And I do believe our second guest has been listening in on the last half hour. So let's bring on Edison Walters. Good afternoon, Mr. Walters. Good afternoon. How are you doing today? Uh, I saw you sneaking in the background there, and you're saying, all right, let me see what I'm in for, if she's really who she says she is, or am I going to have a problem here? <laughs> well, I, I absolutely enjoyed listening, and, um, you know, I uh, lived in the state of Alabama for about 20 years, and Alabama is 
actually a state where you can open carry without a permit or anything. So, um, you know, it's interesting that, you know, um, you know, a lot of states are actually considering that. But uh, I think, you know, the Constitution actually gives us the right to bear arms. So I, I, I don't think there should be any restrictions on open carry at all. Well, I, I agree with you. You know, it, it's also deterrent because if someone sees you walking by with something strapped to your hip, they're less likely to even try to think of pulling something. And exactly. for me as a female, me as a female, hey, listen, you see me packing, then you better be, you know, taking a hike. <laughs> you're not coming near me. And it's a huge, huge deterrent. And especially if you're in a crowd where someone's looking to pull something off, they see you walking with something on your hip. Uh, maybe you might think about going somewhere else. Yeah, you know, it's so funny. I had an interview with um, a police uh, organization, and they asked the question, do you support um, open carry? Because it's, it's a, you know, big, um, it's, big, it's a big part of the conversation here in Florida. And I said, yeah, absolutely. And they were completely shocked that I said that. They said, well, you know, we've never gotten a straightforward answer like that. I said, uh, I asked them the question, would you rather, if you're approaching somebody, would you rather know that they're armed or would you rather guess that they're armed? And everybody agreed with me. Hey, I'd much rather know that somebody's armed when I'm approaching them. Oh, exactly. Now, you were born, even though you were born in the United States, in the U.S. Virgin Islands, you are in a way... No, 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 no. I, I was not born... I was not born in the United States. I'm a, I was born in the country of Trinidad and Tobago. Oh, that's... I, grew, I apologize. I, we, my I, family I apologize. Moved, I'm looking at my notes. Yeah, my family moved to I, the I, U.S. Virgin Islands when I was very young. All right, because my ex-partner actually was uh, born in Trinidad and Tobago. Her father was a police officer down there, and she became my partner in NYPD. <laughs> so, yeah, my mother <laughs> lives in the Virgin Islands. Uh, matter of fact, I got to tell you a funny story because, you know, uh, she lives on, in St. Thomas. But I got to tell you a funny story because you know how slow the mail is and how bad it is down there. For her birthday yeah. for July 4th, I made her a prayer shawl. I mailed it to her church, Priority Mail, so that the the father over there can bless it for her. Well, I didn't know that the father I dressed it to got transferred to St. Croix. So it went down to St. Thomas, over to St. Croix, then back over to St. Thomas, and she finally got it yesterday. <laughs> so, wow. I love the man. U.S. Post Office. <laughs> and they want a rate increase. <laughs> I know. Well, Edison, you're well, ready hey, to let, let me tell you something. While, while, while we're on the subject of the Virgin Islands, let me tell you something real quick that a lot of people don't know. Um, and while we're talking about the Caribbean and the Virgin Islands, you know, um, I grew up on the island of St. Croix, literally in the shadows of where one of our founding fathers, Alexander Hamilton, grew up. A lot of people don't know that Alexander Hamilton was actually born in the country of Nevis, which is a little Caribbean island, and he moved to the U.S. Virgin Islands. Uh, he moved to St. Croix, where he actually grew up before he migrated to the United States to become one of our founding fathers. 
Yes, and George Washington also had connections to the Caribbean, too. So a lot of our founding fathers had some sort of a connection through the Caribbean. Yeah. It's a, it's a beautiful, wonderful place. And you also do a lot of work down there in the wake of the past hurricanes. Yes, I, I'm actually um, part of a think tank that uh, we try to present ideas to help um, the Virgin Islands uh, recover from the storm and uh, also economic initiatives and, and so on. We, we put forth those ideas. And I'm actually on a radio show called the Economic Roundtable that actually broadcasts in the United States Virgin Islands. And um, we also rebroadcast around the country um, on um, several different platforms. Well, you're running for Congress out of Florida District 22, which has a primary coming up, I believe, in August. Was it August 12th yes. or something like that? Uh, it's actually August 28th. Uh, and District 22 happened to include Parkland, where, um, well, everybody, I'm sure the whole country knows about Parkland, Florida by now. But, um, you know, that was also interesting that you all discussed um, things that had happened in my district also uh, in the last segment. Well, now, it's a wide field. So tell us why you decided to throw your hat into the ring. Well, initially, I was not even planning on running for Congress. I've been out of the political process for a little while because um, I decided to go back to school. I went back to school and got my MBA, and I started working on my doctorate degree, and I was really focused on my doctorate degree. When I moved to the state of Florida from Alabama, I, I was focused on my doctorate degree, so I wasn't very involved in the political process. And uh, I got to a point where I had um, got so far along in my dissertation and I had defended my proposal and I was just about finished writing my final chapters of my dissertation. And I, you know, said, you know, I think it's time for me to get back involved in the community with all the things that were going on. And I decided, hey, you know, it would be a good thing to support somebody who's running for Congress against Ted Dorch because, you know, he he used the Parkland um, incident tragedy as a platform to rally against our Second Amendment, and I was pretty disturbed by that. And so when I looked at the other two candidates, you know, I, I was really troubled by the the candidates in the race, especially the candidate which everybody looked at as the leading candidate in the race. They had a long history of violence. I mean, just 24 months ago, about 24 months ago, he was arrested on attempted murder charge after he assaulted his sister's boyfriend and shot his car full of bullet holes. Then he had a, in his history, he also had an incident where he uh, pled guilty to driving his car into a man's door breaking down his door and going in the man's apartment and assaulting the guy who happened to be dating his ex-girlfriend. And just since the beginning of 2017, 
there were three different cases filed in civil court against him, one for domestic violence, one for stalking violence, and one for dating violence. And this guy was getting endorsements from, from I mean, even Pam Bundy endorsed him. And, um, you know, he even got some endorsements from some, from, um, some right to life groups and gun owner groups and stuff like that. And, I, you know, I was pretty disturbed about that. And the other candidate in the race was not even raising issues about his record. And, you know, I, I, you know, I just don't, didn't, I felt like I didn't have any choice. I had to get in the race because we need good representation um, in, in the Republican party. I mean, we actually need candidates that have that can actually win in the general election, and we don't just need to pick a candidate just so we are picking a candidate. Mr. Edison. Well, you have, go ahead, Curtis. Curtis is from Florida, so he knows more about going out <laughs> yeah. of Florida than I do. <laughs> yeah, my, my question is: um, in South Florida, there there are a lot of immigrants from the Caribbean. Do they tend to be more Republican or more Democrat? Well, uh, you know, minorities tend to gravitate to the Democratic Party. And the main reason is because that's what they've done historically. But as people get more educated, they're they're very open to – you know, looking at things from a different perspective. Matter of fact, um, one of the major parts of my platform is I speak to the issue of small businesses and empowering minority communities to create jobs for themselves. Uh, One of the main things I talk about is if you were a small business last year and you made $50,000, you paid four and a half times the amount of taxes as somebody who had a W-2 job. The actual numbers for a person that was single, I mean married with one child that had a W-2 job that paid, earned $50,000, he paid $1,800 in taxes. The self-employed person paid $8,200 in taxes, and he had to pay for his own benefit. Now, a lot of people would argue that, hey, the reason why they're paying it is because they're paying the half of the self um, half of the taxes that self-employment tax that the employees should normally pay. But you tell that to the Uber driver or or the guy that has a little small mom and pop shop that's paying that taxes and see if it makes any difference whether he can afford to pay it or not. The and you, small you just business have a is the backbone. Of, Excuse me. I was, I was going to say small business. Small businesses are the backbone of, of our workforce. There are more yes, small and, business and, employers than you have large corporations. So it's important that we do protect the small businesses. And I'm glad to see that that is the number one on your platforms on your webpage, which is EdisonWaltersForCongress.com. Yes, and you know people from the Caribbean are, are very entrepreneurship oriented. And we've talked about solving problems in in minority communities for the last fifty years, and when we've actually spent so much time talking about the symptoms of the problem, 
Because when you talk about crime, it's an economic issue. When you talk about health care, it's an, an economic issue. When you talk about affordable housing, it's an economic issue. And so if we address the issue of self-employment taxes and create an environment in minority communities that empower these communities to take advantages of opportunities um, to be self-employed, if we address that issue, we go a long way to solving all the other symptoms of the problem, which is economics. You know, today we're in an environment where you can literally sit at home and you can work from at home as an independent contractor for a company. And so that gives you the ability, if you're in a economically distressed community where there's not a lot of jobs, you can actually work from home. But somebody working from home who's considered to be self-employed can't pay these astronomical taxes. And so what we need to do is we're operating under policies from the 60s and 70s where most people actually went to a job and they clocked in and they had benefits and, and, and things of that nature, we need to update our antiquated economic policies to reflect the reality of today's economy so we can give people in, in, in rural communities and minority communities an opportunity to take advantage of, of you know, uh, working for themselves in, in, in this, this today's, um, you know, environment. Well, you talk about on your webpage about reforming the SBA, the Small Business Association, which gives loans to small businesses. And this is a problem that, you know, my husband has seen when he tried a business and I've seen on my side when I've tried a business, the reverse discrimination on SBA loans, how it's easier for some people to get the loans other than, you know, someone of my character. Uh, Because I am a white, they say, well, no, we're giving out the loans for minorities. But shouldn't it be equal across the board? If you've got a good, solid idea that passes the smell test, why can't it be where you look at the content of the character and not the color of our skin? Well, yeah, you are absolutely right. Uh, You know, the loans should be merit-based. But even a a larger problem with the SBA is the SBA is a slow process. We're operating in in an economy that is dynamic and a fast-moving economy. Information is, is, is being transferred very quickly in today's economy. And so what we need to do is we need to update the SBA so they can move very quickly because in today's economy, opportunities doesn't last very long because of information and technology. You know, in the past, in order to share information, you had to print a stack of papers, you had to pack it up, and you had to put it in the mail, and and they might get it, you know, a week later, and then they go through it, and then they get to react to what's happening. Today, you can share information instantly at the tip of your fingers. So opportunities that come along, they don't last very long. 
And when you file an application with the SBA and you have to wait six months to finally get a loan, by the time you get your application approved and, and, and you get your loan, your industry may have completely moved past the opportunity that you were trying to take advantage of. Well, that's a huge amen to that, <laughs> a huge one. I want to move on to the uh, the trade war that everyone's crying about because Trump is using his executive uh, rights uh, to issue tariffs. And these are these are given to him by Congress. Because originally when the Constitution was written, Congress was the one that issued the trade tariffs. And over time, you know, the president would propose them, go before Congress, Congress would debate them, and then they say yes or no. Uh, so in 64, they signed a bill which allowed the president, in cases of national security, to use trade as a tool in negotiating treaties and other agreements. Uh, so he's doing exactly what Congress has asked him to do. There is now uh, legislation that's been proposed by, believe it or not, my congressman, which is why he lost his primary, to put it fully back in the hands of Congress and not allow our president any sort of a negotiating tool when it comes to tariffs. Do you agree with this or do you disagree? Well, before I answer your question, let me establish something so the listening audience can get the perspective of where this is coming from. My doctorate degree, which I just completed the work on, is in global business. Global business is a combination of international business, which include international trade, and technology, which is the driver of globalization. Now, the work I just completed on my doctorate degree is a study on the global financial crisis, where I looked at the movement of capital in the form of foreign direct investment, inward flowing foreign direct investment before and after the global financial crisis, and I looked at how the, that movement of capital have changed in the aftermath of the global financial crisis. I also looked at how it affected uh, economic growth in the form of GDP before and after the global financial crisis. Also looked at how that in turn it affected international trade export. And I just wanted to say that to establish the fact that when it comes to international trade, most people would consider me to be an expert because of the work I've done in that area. Now, um, answering your question about the president, I, I think the president absolutely should have the right to negotiate these trade deals. Now, one of the things that people don't know is international trade is based on Adam Smith's writing, The Wealth of All Nations. And in The Wealth of All Nations, Adam Smith talked about the division of labor, which is what we refer today as manufacturing. And Adam Smith said, through the manufacturing process, innovation is created, advancement in technology is created, and, the, and, and that innovation which is created leads to entire brand new industries being formed. So now you have to think that when we ship manufacturing overseas and we allow these countries unfair trade advantages over a country, we're shipping generations of new industries that would evolve through the manufacturing process. 
you know, it, when, when the rest of the world refers to free trade, their idea of free trade is shipping their products into our country duty-free and charging us tremendous tariffs to ship to their country. That, that's their idea of free trade, and I'm glad we finally have a president that's willing to do something about it. What people don't understand, like the president said, trade wars, we've been in a trade war for a long time. It's just that the people in this country are finally, the president is finally trying to wake up the people in this country and get them to understand that the United States have been in a trade war for a long time. When our jobs went overseas, we actually lost the trade war. And the only thing the president is doing, he's finally standing up and fighting back for the hard-working Americans in this country. Well, you know, what people don't realize is the history of our trade. And for the longest time, we were embargoed. So because of that, because we are so innovative, we ended up having countless industries being born here in the United States, where in the past we were importing to the colonies. You know, the War of 1812 yeah. with the embargoes, we ended up saying, all right, fine, we need steel here in the United States. We will make the steel plants. We will make what we need here. We don't need to go anywhere else to get it. And matter of fact, uh, George Washington had stated in his inaugural address, he says, I use no porter or cheese in my family, but such as is made in America. It used to have made in America stamped proudly on items. We prefer to buy things made in America. In his State of the Union address in 1790, to, to bolster Trump's argument, he wrote, he actually stated, a free people ought not only to be armed, but disciplined to which end a uniform and a well-digested plan is requ- and their safety and interests require that they should promote such manufactories as to tend to render them independent of others for essential, particularly military supplies. And when you think about the steel industry alone, how much we use in our military, but we rely on outside sources for stuff that has to be made to a certain specification. So we're giving them our military secrets if we allow these things to be manufactured overseas and then imported here. So Trump is 100% right. He's absolutely 100% right. And I can give you an example uh, of of, um, how, uh, you know, outsourcing um, and manufacturing overseas actually hurt this country. You know, everybody knows who Dell Computer is. Well, Dell Computer actually, um, at one time, you know, they made computers, but they don't make computers today. And most people, you know, think Dell 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 still makes computers. What happened is Dell Computer started out outsourcing simple circuits to a company called ASUS. And then ASUS gave Dell a proposal to uh, make some more components for their computer and gave and Dell saw, um, hey, it would be more cost effective if they outsourced ASUS. And then ASUS bit by bit gave them more and more proposals. And finally ASUS said, okay, well, we're making all these components for your computer. And they gave them a proposal to actually start assembling their computer. Well, ASUS got so good at, making computers that they started selling by at a fraction of what Dell could sell computers for. 
And so today, ASUS computers, it actually, um, you know, Dell cannot compete with ASUS because Dell outsourced their their um, computer manufacturing to ASUS. So Dell no longer makes computers. Dell is really just a, a marketing company. Um, if you want a computer with specific specs, you can um, order it through Dell. Dell will have it made, and they will ship it to you. But Dell, Dell can't make computers anymore. I mean, they can't compete with manufacturing computers anymore because they, um, you know, they they allow um, a, a foreign company, you know, to get so good at making computers that they just can't compete anymore. It's it's amazing. Um... There's so much that goes on with the trade that it's hard to explain it in just a few minutes for everyone to understand. And yet, uh, as I said, my congressman, uh, Mark Sanford, had put forward this uh, bipartisan legislation to curtail and take that power that Congress had granted him, take it back from him and say that, no, Congress has now 60 days to debate. And then once the House is done with it, then it goes to the Senate for another 10 days. So they do have it timelined, uh, but I, I, I don't want to see that. What started working in 1964 is working today under the power of Trump, and he's using it as a good tool. And if we take a tool out of the box, you know, that's one less thing we have is a bargaining chip, and he's using it with a good power. But uh, talking about bargaining chips, uh, we have a new president in Mexico. Uh, Andres Manuel Lopez Arbrador, I probably mispronounced that, but oh well, um, who because of Trump's saber rattling is now saying, yes, we're going to build a wall. So Mexico is now saying that they're going to build a wall. Is this a good thing or a bad thing? Well, I mean, that's absolutely a good thing because I've said over and over and over, Mexico has the power to solve the problem on our southern border. And, I, I, you know, I think that we actually need to tie trade with Mexico to solving the problem on our border because we shouldn't be um, purchasing all these products and helping the Mexican economy. Without the United States, the Mexican economy would collapse. And so we, we shouldn't be propping up the Mexican economy when they allow people to come to their southern border, cross their entire country to come to our southern border to come into the United States illegally. Mexico has the power to help us solve the problem on the southern border. Mexico needs to have something to lose in order for them to step up to the table and help us address this issue. And it's time that, you know, we sanction Mexico as long as they're not going, as long as they continue to allow people to flow through the, their country to our southern border, they need to be sanctioned. I mean, you know, I mean, we, 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 we should put our foot down, and I'm encouraging our president to adopt policies to sanction Mexico for allowing this to continue. Well, it looks like he is going to have it on Mexico's southern border as well as reinforcing the northern border, which is a good thing. And I've said this time and time again. You know, if you are not helping us secure our borders, then we should be withholding aid from you. So for every time you allow someone to slip a course, 
another dollar comes out of the bank. So now we're having the cries from people to abolish ICE. And we hear everyone going, well, ICE is just something that was just created recently through the Department of Homeland Security. No, ICE was originally INS. INS just modified what, what they're doing and changed their name. They've been around to the same people, same basic idea, but now we must abolish ICE. Is that the craziest thing you have ever heard? You know, it's absolutely the craziest thing I've ever heard. Um, you know, the ICE does so much um, to help protect this country. I mean, ICE is a critical part of our infrastructure that protects our country from attack, from terrorism. I think the numbers are something like about uh, 10, um, 10 uh, terrorists that ICE detains per day that tries to enter this country. And so, you know, people who are calling for the abolishment of ICE, they simply um, just are very naive. Uh, we're living in a dangerous world, and now is not the time for us to get rid of such a critical part of our infrastructure. Well, you know, with this, the with ICE and all the stuff that's going on, they're still talking about giving amnesty to illegal aliens. I'm not calling them immigrants because they're not immigrants. They are alien to this nation. Um, so exactly. where do you stand there? Because you even have people now bipartisanly saying, we got to do something for these DACA kids. Well, you know, I, I'm first of all, I'm, I'm an immigrant. And, you know, I, I love people from all different cultures. But and, and, you know, people try to defend uh, people who come to this country and say, oh, they're coming to this country because of the American dream. You know, one of the things that people often try, don't, don't acknowledge as part of the American dream is working hard and playing by the rules. When you come to this country illegally, you actually start off the wrong way, you know. And what we need to do is we're a country of laws. Without laws, there is chaos. And illegal immigration disproportionately affects minority communities because illegal immigrants, let's, let's face the fact, they're not going to live in Beverly Hills. They're going to live in the lower-income neighborhoods. So now they go into the lower-income neighborhoods and they drive wages down. Uh, they, uh, the standard of living lowers because landlords don't think they're supposed to fix their house up because who's uh, an illegal immigrant, immigrant isn't going to complain to anybody about the housing condition. And so they, they send their kids to the schools, our crowded schools that we talk about. You know, we, we need uh, the, the ratio of uh, teachers to students is, is so, so low. And so they add to the problem. I mean, we have enough poor people in this country. We don't need to take on the rest of the world's problems. And um, so, you know, the the issue of illegal immigration is one that you would find that quite a number of people, a large segment of the immigrant community, do not support illegal immigration. 
Um, and and, and uh, most of them, um, the majority of them, I would say, are against illegal immigration and, and would like to see strong border security. Um, I don't personally, I don't think people should be rewarded for entering into this country illegally. Matter of fact, I think that if you enter this country illegally, you should never be able to become a citizen. We can make some exceptions for people who serve in the military, but for the most part, if you enter this country illegally, you should never be able to become a citizen. And, you know, it's unfortunate for DACA. Um, My heart goes out to the DACA kids that come to this country. But, you know, um, I don't believe that. I believe that we should give them legal status, not citizenship, because when DACA kids get citizenship, what happens is they can bring the rest of their family to the country, and it encourages families to send their children to this country so they can gain citizenship so they can bring the rest of their family to the country. So I don't even support citizenship for DACA students. I support giving them a legal status in this country, but not citizenship. Well, you know, I've said this before because we had an incident here in South Carolina where the young girl uh, turned 18. She wanted to get her driver's license and attend college, and that's when she learned that she wasn't here legally. And then when her parents finally admitted that she was an illegal immigrant. So she went and applied to my senator, Lindsey Graham, or, or as I call him, Lindsey Graham, this is when he still had a pair of cojones. And he worked it out where she was able to go back to her native country for a short time reapply to return here to the United States, which worked out perfectly fine. You know, once she found out that she was here illegally, she went and took the active steps to make herself a legal citizen, which she then was able to do return, and she's now a legal citizen. Uh, By the time you're 18, 19, 20, you're going to know whether or not you're here legally or illegally. If you're a doctor and you're claiming your doctor came here before the age of 35, I'm sorry. That That does not pass the smell test. By the time you're 22, you have got to have done something to make yourself a legal immigrant here or return to your native country. At that point, I have no sympathy for them. Don't tell me at the age of 35 that, oh, my goodness, all these years I finally realized I'm not here illegally. What has happened those last 15 years, you dummy? <laughs> it's just a Exactly. Pass. And, you know, you're absolutely right about that. Um, you know, and we keep referring to these people as DACA kids. Doctor kids. I mean, come on. Uh, let's face it. We're not talking about kids. We're talking about grown adults who they understand they should know um, that they've been here illegally all these years. And like you said, if they wanted to go through things the right way, and uh, you know, they 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 would actually um, you know try to find out the process that they need to go through in order to get things done the right way. But somebody who's just here illegally shouldn't just be given amnesty and given citizenship because, you know, we should not reward um, illegal activity. Edison. Well, there's now, I was just to mention, because there is now going before Congress some legislation where it would up the penalty if you are caught here illegally the first time, changing it from, a misdemeanor to a felony. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. 
I mean, people who enter the country repeatedly and, and uh, when we have to keep, um, you know, using our resources to deport you over and over, yeah, we, we definitely should should uh, make it a felony. Curtis, go ahead, and then we have a caller in on the line. Okay. When you look at countries like Mexico and some Caribbean islands, such as um, Puerto Rico, Haiti, Cuba, they don't seem to be thriving, you know, um, economically. And I'm just curious if they were thriving, just like some of the other countries in the Caribbean, would their people be more inclined to remain in their country versus immigrate to the United States or are they immigrating because they want more opportunities that they just don't have there, even if the country was thriving? Well, um, first of all, let's kind of take Mexico, I'm sorry, take uh, Puerto Rico off of that list. I understand what you're saying with the economic issues in Puerto Rico, but, you know, Puerto Rico, they're part of the United States, as we both know. So, um, you know, when we talk about Puerto Rico, and we even talk about the United States Virgin Islands, what happens is the best and the brightest often leave the islands and come to the United States to college. I see. Because they're citizens and, 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 you know, people from Puerto Rico and the United States Virgin Islands, they have access to student loans, financial aid, and everything they need. And it's just more options to go to college in the continental United States. So you find that the best and the brightest in the Virgin Islands and Puerto Rico often leave in order to come to the United States. That's one of the first problems. And we talk about that a lot on our show. About the, We call it the brain drain. Um, and then secondly, um, because the Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands tend to be heavily influenced by the Democratic Party, you have a lot of policies that does not encourage entrepreneurship, doesn't encourage, um, you know, business, um, the growth of business. Uh, one of the big issues in a, a in a territory like the Virgin Islands is, you know, the government feels like they need to control everything. And so the government, you have a lot of quasi-government agencies controlling things like the power company uh, and, and a lot of things like that where if you outsource and you allow people to come in who do these type of work every day and have the expertise, they can be ran more efficiently. And so when you look at territories like Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands, you have a lot of that going on, which really is stifling the economy. Now, um, in some of the other islands, um, you know, it, it's it, the uh, some of the other islands in the Caribbean. You just don't have the type of economic development they need. But uh, you know, we can actually help some of these countries in 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 the area of technology, and uh, and allow you know these countries to uh, flourish by helping them leverage technology in order to create economies on in their island countries. 
um, that would also solve some of the issues in terms of them migrating, um, coming here illegally. So there's a lot of different things that we can do to um, because you know if we if we invest in these countries and, and and we have closer trade relationships with these countries, it helps their economy and it also solves some problems for us. Yeah, unfortunately, the islands have become so heavily dependent upon tourism that they've allowed what industries they originally have to go to the wayside. And uh, redeveloping a lot of those industries is important. As I know, uh, when my parents moved there, it took them six months before they finally had someone run power to the house. So for six months, they were working off with candles and generators. Uh, So it is a lot of truth to what you say. They've been mired in these democratic the, the Democratic Party policies that have swung so far left that I don't know if the yeah. Islanders will ever be able to return to prosperity. You know, one of the one of the interesting things on the show that I'm on um, that broadcast in the Virgin Islands is that uh, I have one of my colleagues who's a regular co-host on the show. He's a Republican, and we spend most of our time fighting against you know, the leftist policies of most of the, uh, you know, other um, guests and, and the other hosts on the show. But, you know, we pretty much have our handful because, you know, you're talking about an economy where, you know, probably over 75% of the people in 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 the um, those territories support the Democratic Party. And it's you know, a, a situation where, you know, you you can't get any type of solutions to problems, but you keep electing the same people over and over and over. And, um, you know, I, you know, it's, it's real difficult. Uh, it's a real difficult situation, but we try to give our input and, and try to promote ideas and policies and hopefully one day, you know, we can get the masses to start thinking a little bit differently. Well, let's bring the caller in on the line. He's a former co-host of mine, Cool Mike. Good afternoon, Cool Mike. Annie and uh, Curtis, thank you for taking my call. Uh, two quick questions for our guests. Um, yesterday, we obviously saw what's going on with the FBI Um <clears throat> And today, obviously, more hearings. What is your uh, take on those? And um, second question, Congressman Justin Amash and several others uh, have introduced a bill to eliminate the Department of Education. And one of their comments uh, for several uh, congressmen, they want to introduce more legislation to eliminate other departments, labor and uh, just other departments, um, agriculture, transportation, within the United States uh, federal government. What is your take on, on uh, that picture? Uh, number one is uh, currently what's going on with all the hearings and uh, uh, the FBI and Trump's uh, the Russia probe, which obviously we know is not real anymore, and um, the eliminating of departments for the federal government. Well, one of um, on the on the FBI probe. Um, I think it's an absolute, complete disgrace and a shame that we've entered this, you know, type of surface atmosphere 
um, you know, I think we need to go ahead and wrap this thing up, um, you know, because we it, it's quite obvious. If, if the president, if this was a criminal investigation and not a political witch hunt, this investigation, uh, this case would have been thrown out of court a long time ago because all an attorney would have to do is make a motion to dismiss the case and present the evidence um, of all the prejudice. And um, it, it, this would be considered entrapment in, in any criminal proceeding in any court in the United States, and it would have been tossed out of court a long time ago. Now, we do need to investigate to understand exactly what happened in the FBI so we can take corrective actions to ensure these kind of things never happen again. But in terms of the case against the president, I, I think it's a circus, and it's time for us to end that circus. Now, the second question you ask about eliminating different departments, one of the things I believe that we should do is we should actually combine the Department of Labor and the Department of Education because one of the problems within our education system is that we do things because it's the way that we've always done them. We we are not adopting to the changing environment and the changing economy. If you combine labor and education, you allow labor demands to drive where education is going. A case in point, in today's economy, everything is driven by computers. I mean, you look at a little small Chevy sedan has 11 computers. A Chevy SUV has something like 30-something computers. Everything is driven by computers. Yet, when you look at what's going on in our high schools, we're not promoting technology enough in our high school. There's no reason that a student today should not, shouldn't graduate from high school with the equipped with the knowledge to go to work in technology. Whether or not that student is going to college or not, a student that's graduating today should have knowledge of technology. They should have knowledge of programming and coding and so on which allow these students to be able to work in technology. They can literally sit at home on their laptop and work for a company in today's economy. What we're doing now is we're outsourcing a lot of things to India and other parts of the world where there's a language barrier because we don't have the skills to do those jobs in these countries. It's a travesty that, you know, you have kids that graduate from high school. In most of our inner cities, less than 20% of the kids are going on to a four-year college, which means over 80% of the kids have to flip hamburgers or, you know, just hang around the neighborhoods unemployed. And, and so what, you know, we focus so much on, uh, a kid getting a college education, which we, yes, we do need to focus on that. But, you know, we also need to focus on equipping kids today so when they graduate from high school, 
if they don't go on to college, they can have meaningful employment. And it starts with identifying areas of need and equipping the kids from high school with vocational training. And a lot of technology, a trade issues in terms of skill trade, in terms of, you know, electrician, uh, plumbing, and things of that nature, um, HVAC, and so on. Uh, these are jobs where kids could literally make six digits coming out of high school, and I just can't understand why our education system isn't adopting so we can meet the challenges, so we can supply the labor force that we need in this country. Well, Edison, what a great answer. I was going to ask, wouldn't it be a, a better way that if we just simply took the Department of Labor and Department of Education, if you do unite them, <coughs> excuse me, but send them back down to the states? Because the states know what their needs are better than the federal government. Because one size fits all will not work. What we need in Washington state may not work in Florida. Wouldn't it be better than to bring it back down to the states? Because it was never a part of the federal function according to the Constitution. Well, you know, I, I really support states having control over a lot of things, but I think in terms of education and in terms of, of labor, I think one of the problems with sending these back down to the states is that we're in a global economy. Technology transfers across state boundaries, and so especially in the area of technology, um, we don't need 50 different policies in terms of educating technology because technology is just one field. And, 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 and the, te the, the technology element of our economy means that we really need to focus and have one single policy in terms of education and identifying areas of growth in technology because, let's face it, it doesn't matter what state you're in or what state a company, a technology company in is in, you can sit in your state and you can work for a tech company. You can sit in California and work for a tech company in, in New York. And so, you know, when we start talking about sending education and labor back down by the state, because of technology, I think that it would really be a challenge having to deal with 50 states and 50 different policies because technology is the one area of growth that is going to continue to grow rapidly. And so for that reason, I think we really need to keep education and labor at, at the federal level. Well, we're down to our last few minutes of the show, Edison, and I thank you for joining us. This this whole show has gone so fast between Larry Pratt and you. I looking up the clock and it's like less than six minutes left. But people can find you at your website, which is your name, EdisonWatersForCongress.com. dot com. There's a link here it's on the show for people listening. It's, it's actually Walters, like Barbara Walters. Right. I I've got the link on the show page. People, when they listen to the podcast later on, can just click on the link, go straight over to your site, and check out all the information you have about yourself, which is very interesting. And I wish you good luck, and 
the primary again, you said, is August 28th. And August you're in a pretty 28th. big... Pe- yep. Okay. Did I lose Edison? No, I'm I'm still here. Yeah, uh, the I think- primary is August 28th. Uh, the winner of the primary will go on to face Ted Dodge. I'm encouraging everybody to visit my website uh, and get involved in the campaign. If you don't live in the district, you can still help my campaign by clicking on a button and making a contribution to our campaign. Uh, no contribution is too small, um, you know, and, and uh, we're fighting because, you know, my parents came to this country 47 years ago. Uh, me and my two brothers and sisters were uh, able to achieve the American dream because my parents opened a, a small business. And, um, you know, when I asked myself if my parents came to this country today, would me and my two brothers and sisters have the opportunity we've had to achieve the American dream? I really don't know the answer to that question. Something is wrong with that so we have to restore the promise of the American dream to the district and for the people and the, of this great country. Edison, is well, Broward uh, County... Uh, uh, is, Curtis, we're down to our last three minutes, so oh, I'm okay. sorry we ran out of time here. All right, Edison, I want to thank you for joining us, and I wish you a lot of good luck, and we welcome you back anytime. God bless, sir. Okay, thank you. And Broward County is part of the district. The district is Boca Raton, and it runs all the way down to Fort Lauderdale Airport in Broward County. Okay, so you must know luck when luck. Yes, I do. And and the district includes Parkland, Coconut Creek, uh, Coral Springs. Miami Gardens? No, not Miami Gardens, but Margate. Okay, we got to go. Thank you All right, so thank much. you, Edison. All right, all right. We will be back here on uh, on Tuesday, and we've got Robert Spencer of Jihad Watch with us, and also author John Tamney who will be joining us. And the following Friday, Katie Arrington will be joining us along with Larry Harvey. Uh, we've got some great guests coming up. Also, towards the end of the month, on the thirty first, we have Judge Janine Prero. Uh, she will right. be joining us. She's got a new book that is coming out. So we've got great guests lined up. So I want to wish everyone a happy weekend. Uh, Have a safe one out there. There are some storms coming around, so just be careful where you're living to check the weather. So until then, I say good night, God bless, and I'll leave you with our closing song, When the Roll is Called Up Yana. Until then, good night and God bless.